Welcome to Rigo's Business Review, where we bring you the latest in leadership, business, and tech. I'm your host, Carl Rigo. Join us each week as we share unexpected insights and underreported stories from the world of business to inform, uplift, and inspire, and make you think. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the podcast. Today, we'll reveal Silicon Valley's most significant document ever, according to Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg. We'll also offer an update on what the Warren Buffett indicator tells us about asset prices and a possible market correction. And for line managers, we'll share tips on how to increase employee engagement and therefore productivity and performance. But first, we wanted to start with a bit of inspiration on this Martin Luther King Day at this momentous time in history. With an outgoing commander in chief, who is the first ever to be brought up on impeachment charges twice, and an incoming U.S. president set to be sworn in in just a few days, who promises a message of unity at a time of deep division and ongoing health and economic crisis. Currently, Washington, D.C. is militarized in the run-up to the inauguration. It's now occupied by 25,000 troops. Barriers have been erected, and there won't be any crowds or attendees at the ceremony as that's all been curtailed following the recent storming of the Capitol by rioters and due to security and coronavirus threat. Against this backdrop, Dr. King's example reminds us all that a leader who lives and leads with honor has an ennobling effect on those around him. And what might that look like in practice? How does one cultivate and embody that? For more, let's turn to a quote from the man himself. This is from the book Strength to Love, which is a collection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons. In it, he says, A French philosopher said, No man is strong unless he bears within his character antitheses strongly marked. The strong person holds in a living blend strongly marked opposites. Not ordinarily do people achieve this balance of opposites. The idealists are not usually realistic, and the realists are not usually idealistic. Seldom are the humble self-assertive or the self-assertive humble, but life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. The philosopher Hegel said that truth is found neither in the thesis nor the antithesis, but in an emergent synthesis that reconciles the two. That quote encourages us to be open and to respect the perspectives of other people. And to paraphrase John Stuart Mill, If we do not understand our opponent's argument, we do not fully understand our own. And how does all this relate to business? Well, we're all leaders, and as the world economy continues to evolve from a narrow shareholder view to a broader, more inclusive stakeholder view of business, it's important to bear this in mind. As they say in US business, where you sit is where you stand. And stakeholders sitting within different organizations, functions, and sectors will have different views and priorities, which must be heard and considered as we build coalitions to accomplish shared aims. This idea also relates to today's episode as we explore different approaches to encouraging employee engagement. We'll return to the theme of restoring civil discourse in the public square in future episodes. And now, on with the show. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the most compelling insights I'd come across week to week. 
And one of the most intriguing discoveries I'd made recently was this publication, which has been called Silicon Valley's most important document ever, which makes you wonder, well, what is it? We'll get there. First, let's start with the David and Goliath story to set up the origin of that publication. Imagine, it's the year 2000 and you're the CEO of a two-year-old startup in the entertainment industry with 100 employees, 300,000 subscribers, and oh, by the way, you're about to make a loss of $57 million this year. We'll call this company David in the David and Goliath story. You're getting desperate and have spent months trying to get one particular industry, Goliath, to even take your call. Now you've secured a meeting with this $6 billion company who are 1,000 times the size of your business. And when you arrive at the meeting, you pitch them to purchase your company outright for $50 million. But why would they be interested in a flailing startup? After all, what could your company possibly offer that Goliath couldn't do themselves? They have the brand, the power, the resources, and the vision. No surprise then that they flat out refuse your proposal. After which the situation looks pretty dire for your company. But wait, fast forward. Two years later, you've somehow turned the situation around and grown the company tenfold and taken it public. In another eight years, so it's 2010, the market and technology have evolved such that that Goliath is now out of business, has gone bankrupt, and by 2019, there's a new king in town, King David. Quick quiz. Can you guess the real identities of the players in this drama? If you guessed Goliath was Blockbuster Video, and that David was, well, you guessed it, Netflix. So how'd they do that? Well, for one thing, one of the two companies prioritized innovation and the other didn't and became complacent. And here's where our mystery publication comes in. There is a document called The Culture Deck and it offers vital clues. Well, what is it and what does it say? So this is the original version of a document from Netflix. It's from 2009. It's on SlideShare and I encourage you all to check it out. What it is is a summary of the culture of Netflix from the perspective of the sorts of people they hire and how they run the company day to day. I'd like to share some highlights of what it says. Now this is not to endorse this document wholesale per se, but rather to present these insights for consideration and let you decide what you think of it. The document begins as follows. Netflix culture, freedom and responsibility. There's a symbol of a yin and yang. It says, we seek excellence. Our culture focuses on helping us achieve excellence. There are seven aspects of our culture. Just really quickly, values are what we'd value, number one. Secondly, high performance. Thirdly, freedom and responsibility. Fourth, context, not control. Fifth, highly aligned, loosely coupled. Sixth aspect is to pay top of market. Seventh is around promotions and development. So the document carries on. Many companies have nice sounding value statements displayed in the lobby, such as integrity, communication, respect, excellence. The actual company values, as opposed to the nice sounding values, are shown by who gets re rewarded, promoted, or let go. Actual company values are the behaviors and skills that are valued in fellow employees. So at Netflix, we particularly value the following nine behaviors and skills in our colleagues, meaning we hire and promote people who demonstrate these nine. 
And here I'll just rattle through them really quickly. Judgment, communication, impact, curiosity, innovation, courage, passion, honesty, selflessness. In terms of high performance, the document goes on to say, imagine if every person at Netflix is someone you respect and learn from. Great workplace is stunning colleagues. It says great workplace is not espresso, lush, lush benefits, or nice offices. We do some of these things, but only if they are efficient at attracting and retaining stunning colleagues. Here's where some of the uniqueness comes out. Like every company, we try to hire well. Unlike many companies, we practice adequate performance gets a generous severance package. We're a team, not a family. We're like a pro sports team, not a kid's recreational team. <laughs> Netflix leaders hire, hire, develop, and cut smartly, so we have stars in every position. And they say the keeper test managers use is which of my people would I fight hard to keep at Netflix? They say the other people should get a generous severance now so we can open a slot to try to find a star for that role. They go on to say, the pro sports team metaphor is good but imperfect. Athletic teams have a fixed number of positions so team members are always competing with each other for one of the precious slots. For our corporate team, the more talent we have, the more we can accomplish, so other people assist each other all the time. Internal cutthroat or sink or swim behavior is rare and not tolerated. We help each other to be great. They then go on to say, our high performance culture is not right for everyone. Many people love our culture and stay a long time. They thrive on excellence and candor and change. They would be disappointed if given a severance package, but lots of mutual warmth and respect would exist. Some people, however, value job security and stability over performance and don't like our culture. They feel fearful at Netflix. They are sometimes bitter if let go and feel that we are, uh, we are a political place to work. We're getting better at attracting only the former and helping the latter realize we are not right for them. Coming to the aspect of culture they call freedom and responsibility, they describe the rare responsible person who is self-motivating, self-aware, self-disciplined, self-improving, acts like a leader, doesn't wait to be told what to do, picks up the trash lying on the floor. Now this next part of the, the deck is really important for all you scale-up companies out there, so I'd encourage you to pay special attention to this part. The Netflix culture deck carries on to say, our model is to increase employee freedom as we grow rather than limit it, to continue to attract and nourish innovative people so we have better chance of sustained success. They say most companies curtail freedom as they get bigger. Why do most companies curtail freedom and become, become bureaucratic as they grow? The desire for bigger positive impact creates growth. Growth increases complexity. Growth also often shrinks talent density. The percentage of high performance employees goes down as the company grows and complexity increases. And here's a really insightful and important part of the deck. So if you can picture from left to right, you've got the complexity arrow going up and to the right, and then you've got the percentage of high performance employees going down and to the right. And then where they cross, they then begin to diverge. So then you have more complexity than you have kind of high performance. You have, you have a greater proportion of complexity than you have high performance employees. And this, there's a big gap that emerges there. 
And they say this is where chaos emerges. So chaos and errors spike when the company reaches that point. The business has become too complex to run informally with this talent level. So what tends to happen next? They say process emerges to stop the chaos, right? And then they say the process focus drives more talent out. They say process brings seductively strong near-term outcomes, but then the market shifts and you can't really adapt. So the Netflix approach is to avoid chaos as you grow with ever more high-performance people, not with rules. Then you can continue to mostly run informally with self-discipline and avoid chaos. The run informally part is what enables and attracts creativity. So they say the key is to increase talent density faster than complexity grows. How do you increase talent density? How do you increase the percentage of high performance employees? They say pay top of market compensation, attract high value people through freedom to make a big impact and be demanding about having a high performance culture. They say, how do you minimize complexity growth? And there's a big insight coming up here. They say have few big products, have a few big products rather than many small ones, eliminate distracting complexity, be wary of efficiency optimizations that increase complexity and rigidity. They say with the right people, instead of a culture of process adherence, we have a culture of creativity and self-discipline, freedom and responsibility. Now you may ask, is freedom absolute? Are all rules and processes bad? Say so no, freedom is not absolute. Like free speech, there are some limited exceptions to freedom at work. So they said there are two types of necessary rules. What do you think they are? First is those that prevent irrevocable disaster, such as financials that are produced are wrong or hackers steal our customers' credit card info. The second type of necessary rules are moral, ethical, and legal issues around dishonesty and harassment, which are intolerable. Netflix says mostly though, rapid recovery is the right model. So just, just fix problems quickly. So they, say, they say high performers make very few errors. They said, we're, we are in a creative inventive market, not a safe to critical market like medicine or nuclear power. And just to say this was a, a helpful insight for me, even just for myself. So they say, me having come from medical devices background and other regulated industries. So Netflix says, you may have heard that preventing an error is cheaper than fixing it. Yes, in manufacturing or medicine, but not so in creative environments. And that's a big insight. This also echoes the, the Silicon Valley kind of ethos of launch early and often and move fast and break things. But coming back to Netflix, they say good process helps talented people get more done Bad process tries to prevent recoverable mistakes. Just a quick example of how Netflix keeps their policy simple. Their expenses policy is five words long. Act in Netflix's best interest. So a summary of their philosophy on freedom and responsibility is, as we grow, minimize rules, inhibit chaos with ever more high performance people, and flexibility is more important than efficiency in the long term, based on their experience. This next section I also think is particularly uh, insightful and helpful for people. There's a quote from The Little Prince where it says, if, in, in the deck, it says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. The deck goes on to say, the best managers figure out how to get great outcomes by setting the appropriate context rather than by trying to control their people. 
So for example, in the deck says managers, when one of your talented people does something dumb, don't blame them. Instead, ask yourself what context you failed to set. In that vein, the deck goes on to say, pay top of market is core to high performance culture. One outstanding employee gets more done and costs less than two adequate employees. We endeavor to have only outstanding employees. And just as an aside, Netflix says their key test is how hard would you fight for this person? When I was at Johnson & Johnson, we would interview. One of the questions we would ask ourselves was, could we see ourselves potentially reporting to this person at some point in the future? As if to say, are they, do they have that potential? Are they that talented? And are they that good with people? Coming back to the Netflix deck, they have three tests for, to assess what is top of market for a person. One, what could the person get elsewhere? Two, what would we pay for a replacement? Three, what would we pay to keep that person if they had a bigger offer elsewhere? And the goal is to keep each employee at the top of market for that person. And in the annual compensation review, uh, essentially the top of market compensation band is reestablished each year for high performing employees based on market rate and the going rate for the roles and things like that. And when it comes to promotion, Netflix identified three necessary conditions for a promotion to take place. One, the job has to be big enough. So the job the person is going to be promoted into has to be big enough to justify a full role. Two, the person has to be a superstar in their current role. And three, the person is an extraordinary role model of the Netflix culture and values. In terms of development, they say, we develop people by giving them the opportunity to develop themselves by surrounding them with stunning colleagues and giving them big challenges to work on. They say mediocre colleagues or unchallenging work is what kills progress of a person's skills. I like this quote. They say, your economic security is based on your skills and reputation. We try hard to consistently provide opportunity to grow both by surrounding you with great talent. And in closing, they say, we keep improving our culture as we grow. We try to get better at seeking excellence. So there you have it. And how is the company doing now? Well, they're currently valued at $220 billion. They have 195 million subscribers. So they are still in the top spot for the streaming entertainment industry. They have, and they have, they do all that with 8,600 employees and they've got 20 billion in revenue, which means their revenue per employee is $2.3 million. So they're definitely sweating some assets around brand IP and systems. So now some would say, well, was it their culture or were they just in the right place at the right time to ride the wave? TBC. And how long will their reign at the top last? It's anybody's guess. The competition is fierce. From whom you might ask? Well, trillion dollar company Amazon are nipping at their heels. And who else? Well, there's a new upstart, new in the streaming space at least, that has been rapidly gaining ground on both Netflix and Amazon in terms of new subscribers and Emmy Award nomina nominations. It's one company called Disney Plus. And they're also poised to offer attractive bundles for their services. And with assets such as Pixar, Lucasfilm, and Marvel, and related opportunities in merchandising, theme parks, and cruises, and things like that. They, they added, Disney added 60 million members in 2020, more than Netflix or Amazon.
It's also helpful to point out, as Section 4 Market Research Firm does, that with the featureization of entertainment content, and content meaning that this content is now becoming a feature of a, of a different offer. So as entertainment becomes featureized, basically the whole business model of the streaming industry changes, whereas previously in Hollywood companies had to be, or projects had to be uh, successful on a standalone basis. Now companies like Amazon can actually put more into production of content than they get out of that particular content, uh, as long as that content helps their relationship with customers be stickier in other areas so they get more Amazon Prime memberships and things like that. So that really makes the competitive landscape pretty much wide open. So who knows how long Netflix can command the top spot in the streaming wars. For Netflix, as in Game of Thrones, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Moving on to other underreported financial and business insights. Have you heard of the Warren Buffett indicator? Well, Business Insider reports that Warren Buffett's favorite market indicator hit a 13-year high, signaling global stocks appear to be the most overvalued since the financial crisis and may be ripe for a correction. What is this indicator and how is it calculated? So the global version of the Buffett indicator takes the combined market capitalizations of publicly traded stocks worldwide and divides it by global GDP. Now remember, market capitalization is just the price per share times the number of shares outstanding for each company in the markets. Any reading over 100% suggests the global stock market is overvalued relative to the world economy. So the gauge climbed past 121% last weekend, according to Bloomberg, which to some sounds an alarm. Buffett trumpeted this indicator in a Fortune article in 2001. The billionaire investor and Berkshire Hathaway CEO described it as probably the best single measure of where valuations stand at any given moment. He said, it should have been a very strong warning signal when the gauge soared to a record high shortly before the dot-com crash, he added. But is this gauge perfect? Well, no, it is not. For example, it compares current stock valuations to GDP last quarter, and there is a, and there is significant variation in the quality and frequency of GDP data across different countries. Also, importantly, as we know, the coronavirus pandemic has sparked widespread economic restrictions that have artificially depressed GDP in recent months. Stocks have also benefited from extraordinary stimulus efforts by governments seeking to shore up their economies as they weather the current crisis. And I would just say yes, uh, picking up on that note, with the US Federal Reserve signaling that they intend to keep interest, interest rates low through 2023 at least, and keeping favorable fiscal monetary policy stimulus, who knows how long the bull market may continue to run. If you're listening in the UK or elsewhere, you may think, well, why does that matter if the Fed keeps interest rates low? You may have heard the expression, when the US sneezes, the world gets flu. Now, with the exception of China, as they're a more robust economy than when that saying came out. But also, uh, Adair Turner, a member of the UK House of Lords and former chair of the 
FSA, Financial Services Authority, UK regulator, which is basically equivalent to the SEC in the US. Lord Adair said at a talk in 2015, as part of his book launch for the title Between Debt and the Devil, a talk I attended, he observed, perhaps counterintuitively, when the US Federal Reserve adjusts their interest rates, it actually has a bigger effect on the UK economy than when the Bank of England changes their interest rates. Just one more reason to keep an eye on the big picture to have a sense of where things may be heading. And now for something completely different in a segment we call Monopoly Watch. Quick question. How popular are labor unions in big tech in Silicon Valley? Answer, not very. In fact, labor unions are rare in the US and even more rare for white collar employees. Still, the hill rising and the New York Times report that hundreds of Google employees have formed a union called the Alphabet Workers Union affiliated with the Communication Workers of America. New York Times reports, but unlike a traditional union, which demands that an employer come to the bargaining table to agree on a contract, the Alphabet Workers Union is a so-called minority union that represents a fraction of the company's more than 260,000 full-time employees and contractors. Workers said it was primarily an effort to give structure and longevity to activism at Google rather than to negotiate for a contract. I would just add that this new union started with 200 members and now has over 700 members and growing. Why did they form it? To continue, Alex Gorowara, who's a volunteer sp spokesperson for the union, said on Rising, it's an extension of a long history of people at Google who care about each other and their work and who feel in recent years, Alphabet are failing to live up to their expectations, failing to act ethically, failing to act consistently, to act in accord with the principles we generally all believe in. Our hope is to steer Alphabet to a more ethical course, both for the benefit of its workers and the public in general. Now, in fact, uh, put a little more stridently, a New York Times op-ed was entitled, We Built Google. This is not the company we want to work for. Our company's motto used to be, don't be evil. An organized workforce will help us to live up to it. Picking up from there, Chewy Shaw in the New York Times, who is the vice chair of the union's leadership council, said the union was a necessary tool to sustain pressure on management so that workers could force changes on workplace issues. He said, our goals go beyond the workplace questions of, are people getting paid enough? Our issues are going much broader. It is a time where a union is an answer to these problems. In response, Kara Silverstein, Google's director of people operations said, we've always worked hard to create a supportive and rewarding workplace for our workforce. Of course, our employees have protected labor rights that we support. But as we've always done, we'll continue engaging directly with all our employees. Alex Gorowara, volunteer spokesperson, carried on. Half of Google's workforce is are temps, vendors, and contractors who are not typically included in employee numbers. However, the union wants to include all individuals. They said we don't want those employment contract boundaries to get in the way of what we believe are the rights of all workers. Alex continued said, our power does not derive from a particular law or statute. We're hoping to get their attention and responsiveness simply by speaking together. This is part of a need that people are realizing. 
we are the first big tech wall-to-wall -wall union. We have give props to those who came before us, such as the union at Kickstarter. We want to inspire those at other big tech firms. So I would just add, it seems Google staff have thrown down the gauntlet and all of big tech is now on notice. Now in other policy and financial news, Andrew Ross Sorkin reports in the New York Times Dealbook that the Biden administration has tapped Gary Gensler, a former financial regulator and Goldman Sachs banker, as head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. What might his priority be, priorities be? Well, Mr. Gensler is expected to rein in Wall Street, building on his work as head when he was a regulator uh, in the Obama administration, where he famously said, Wall Street's interest is not always the same as the public's interest. So here's what the next, this next SEC chief might focus on. Things like requiring companies to disclose their political donations publicly in a standardized way, rethinking the rules around stock buybacks, potentially by imposing preconditions or more disclosures. You may recall there was some controversy around stock buybacks when companies were receiving government help and support and stimulus and things, and then they would turn around and sometimes use the money for to buy their stock back rather than investing or doing other things with it to grow the business. Other areas of focus could include ordering corporate disclosures about boardroom diversity, mandating company disclosures for climate change risks. He has a big focus on transparency, historically. And also, he's likely to focus on formulating clearer rules on cryptocurrencies and blockchain. So stay tuned. Now, some positive economic news to close with. One guess. Which major economy was the only one to avoid a contraction for the year in 2020. That's right, China. China re reported encouraging fourth quarter growth rate of 6.5% to close out at 2.3% growth for the, for the whole year. HSBC reports that China beat their growth estimates and this a, a strong Chinese market ten, typically helps global trade, for example, with commodities. And HSBC Emerging Markets Research Survey also said that a majority of investors are bullish on emerging market growth for the year. And another upbeat news, Goldman Sachs estimates that the U.S. economy is expected to grow at 6.6% this year, rising from the lower baseline from the contraction in 2020. Again, this is partly due to the vaccine rollout and the expectation of the $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal from the Biden administration. And what's in that proposal? Things like a $15 federal minimum wage, $2,000 in direct aid, which includes $600, which has already been approved, and a requirement for employers to offer paid sick leave. And another good health news, how many people have now been vaccinated for coronavirus? According to OurWorldInData.org, as of 18th January, 40 million vaccination doses have now been administered globally, with the U.S., China, U.K., Israel, and the U.A.E. now leading in the top five. And that's a big and positive change from last week. In still other promising news, in the U.K., and perhaps only in the U.K., would you fancy a free pint along with your vaccine? Well, if so, you're in luck because BrewDog are offering their bars as vaccine centers. 
picking up on their action activities last year where they donated 500,000 bottles of hand sanitizer and became the world's first carbon negative beer business. Brewdog are now in talks with the UK government to convert their closed bars into temporary coronavirus vaccine centers. The uh, Anis, Anissa Audu of Design My Night reports, she said that the bars seem to be the ideal spaces for treatments because they have waiting areas, huge refrigerators, and teams of people waiting to help out. Plus, they've got 52 venues across the UK, spanning London, Birmingham, Manchester, and beyond. And that's right, everyone who gets vaccinated will be able to, to grab a special commemorative brew. Now, turning to the topic of employee engagement, while beer may not be on the menu in all workplaces, it is on occasion, special and festive occasions, and provided it is done responsibly and fits with your company culture, it can go over well and be appreciated by staff. We've also talked about the Netflix approach to employee engagement and performance. How else might business leaders encourage employee engagement? Well, that's the topic of today's career advice segment we call the executive suite. And make no mistake, as a line manager, the power of employee engagement is crucial to your success and that of your team. This segment originally aired on the Workplace Radio Show on Resonance 104.4 FM in London. I'd like to thank my colleague NND, who is the producer of that show. And now, join us in the executive suite. Today we're going to talk about employee engagement, why it matters, and how to foster it. By employee engagement... We mean employees who are involved in, enthusiastic about, and committed to their work and workplace. Employee engagement matters because studies by Gallup show that those business units with higher employee engagement perform better. How much better? They are 21% more profitable, and their staff, there's a 40% reduction in absenteeism and up to 59% lower employee turnover. Those business units with high employee engagement also tend to have 10% higher customer ratings and a 20% increase in sales. That sounds wonderful. Every organization would want that. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. So what can a leader do in situations where staff are under-engaged? Well, it depends. There are some general guidelines like making the organizational goals clear and linking them to individual performance objectives and things like that. One key point is that if you see low levels of engagement and performance, it is important to accurately diagnose the situation to find out why. To help with that, there's something called the stress performance curve, which shows that performance increases with stress, but only up to a point. When the level of stress becomes too high, performance decreases. You can think of this as a bell curve, or even as a hill. So at the base of the hill, when you're just starting to increase the level of stress, performance tends to be low, the degree of challenge is low, and that's considered the boredom zone. And then when you progress up that hill, you reach the peak, which is the optimal You've got sufficient challenge and stress to drive kind of peak performance, which is the ideal situation. Then if the stress and degree of challenge continues to increase, people can go over the far side of that hill where they end up in the burnout zone. Let's look at two quick examples from a consulting company. In this situation, the organization had a budget shortfall. Clients were complaining and threatening to abandon the organization and staff were quite underengaged. In this environment, there was a customer relationship manager named Brian, who had been a valuable contributor to the organization over the last five years, but he had recently checked out. He had lost out on a promotion, was not contributing as actively, and there was rumor that he had had some personal challenges at home. 
Brian had a new line manager who came in and made time to meet with him. They went off-site for a lunch. Manager showed that he cared and followed the rule of meet people where they are and then ask, don't assume. So he asked Brian, how's it going? And Brian said, well, not great. I'm kind of um, exhausted from my experience with the prior line manager. And um, I also have a bit of a health crisis at home that I'm dealing with. And I would really love a bit of time off. I've got some paid leave. And I'd also like to request some unpaid time off over the summer to cope with things. So the line manager spoke with him and they agreed he ended up taking a month off over the summer. And then he came back refreshed and was offered a challenging project that played to his strengths. He had exceptional communication skills. The line manager offered support if needed, but he said, other than that, Brian, um, we trust your judgment and we're going to step back and let you lead on this. And Brian then over-delivered. He engaged the team he was leading, delivered on all the numbers that were required, and was later voted the director of the year by his team, which is a great outcome. Second example is Jake, who was in a knowledge management role at the same consultancy. He had kept a low profile. People were not really clear on what his role was, and he was not delivering visible results. So again, this new line manager noticed him, made time for him, and asked him, Hi, Jake, how are you? How's it going? Uh, it turns out that Jake mentioned, well, I tend to work better with a bit more guidance guidance and structure than I've had recently. So the line manager worked with him to come up with some clear performance objectives to agree some work products and outputs. And the line manager shared some examples of what that work should look like so that Jake would be able to really have a sense of what that work would look like. The outcome was that Jake then delivered against all those milestones on time and to a very high standard. And he started, you could you could see that his confidence started to return. He, he started speaking up more and contributing more in team meetings and delivered on all of his objectives. And how did the team do? Well, they turned a 30% budget deficit into a surplus, grew sales by 33%, and retained 100% of those demanding clients. So that shows the power of employee engagement. I'd like to recommend a resource for all you leaders out there. It's from Gallup. It's called The 12 Questions. You can find it on gallup.com. That's G-A-L-L-U-P.com. These are 12 questions that best predict employee work group performance based on 30 years of research and surveys of over 17 million employees. So these are 12 questions like, do you know what is expected of you at work? At work, do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? Does someone at work seem to care about you as a person? And do you have opportunities to learn and grow? So I would encourage you to have a look at those questions and bear them in mind for yourselves and for your team and to use them as a guide and refer to them regularly. And I would also encourage you to think, where are you on that stress performance curve and where would you like to be? And that's the view from the executive suite this week. Thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for the latest insights and to find out which business philosopher famously said, either you run the day or the day runs you. In the meantime, in the spirit of Martin Luther King, let's extend those olive branches where we can. We'd love to hear from you. For any feedback, suggestions, or questions you'd like us to cover, you can email us at krego at lxauk.com and on LinkedIn at karl-rego. Until next time, onwards and upwards, and thank you for listening. Rego's Review, signing off.